Hello, this is Dr. Deepak Ravindran, and today we'll be mapping nociplastic pain on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Deepak Ravindran. Dr. Deepak Ravindran is an upstreamist with a trauma-informed approach to pain practice. He has over 20 years of experience in pain management and is clinical lead in pain medicine at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading, Berkshire, UK. He is one of the very few consultants in the UK who holds triple certification in musculoskeletal, pain medicine, and lifestyle medicine. He also established and leads the dedicated Long COVID in the local area serving a population close to a million. Dr. Deepak Ravindran is also author of Amazon's bestseller, The Pain-Free Mindset. This book is aimed at patients suffering with pain, but also immensely useful for all healthcare professionals in understanding all the recent advances around pain management in a trauma-informed manner. Hello, Deepak. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you, Andrea, for having me. It's good to be here. I'm excited to talk about this topic because pain is such a big topic, and I love how you break it down in several different ways. But if I understand it right, there's three categories of pain, the nociceptive, the neuropathic, and the nociplastic. If I have that right, can you briefly explain them so we can understand the distinctions and then dive more deeply into the nociplastic pain? Absolutely, Andrea. A pleasure, actually. For a long time, throughout our medical careers and, and you know, in whichever school we've all trained from, we've always been told that and taught that there are two kinds of pain. There is a nociceptive pain in which all the acute inflammatory conditions, you know, tendinitis, bursitis, or any acute injuries or fractures or heart attacks, all of those kinds of pain were classified as nociceptive. Then you had the other category of neuropathic, which was all the nerve injuries, the diabetes or the alcohol or the toxin, and those kind of nerve injuries, stroke, Parkinsonism. So all of them got lumped in the neuropathic pain. And then there was an understanding that there would be a mixed group. So there might be nociceptive neuropathic. But over the last 25, 30 years, as our understanding of neuroscience and the work of people like Clifford Wolf and Apkarian from Neuroscience came along, we realized actually that there is this group of patients where the nervous system itself can become hypersensitive and that hypersensitivity, which 
Clifford Wolf called a central sensitization, actually in itself is a massive topic where there can be that kind of sensitization in the periphery. It can happen in the spinal cord and it can happen in the brain. And and over time, there has been a final acceptance that this particular category of pain should deserve its own separate grouping. And that name finally has been settled on as nociplastic pain. Now, by no means is it like fully finalized. I think there's still debate going on in certain expert circles, but the International Association for Study of Pain in 2020 finally said, okay, let's have three circles and there would be a nociplastic, a nociceptive, and a neuropathic. And there can be a mixed category where you can have combinations, but broadly in the nociplastic pain, you would find the conditions like fibromyalgia, like chronic fatigue, like migraine, like, in fact, they've been controversial. They've even suggested that conditions like CRPS might be nociplastic forms of pain, low back pain, non-specific low back pain. So that's what nociplastic pain is and has compared to the other two categories. It's really fascinating to think about it through this lens because it sort of topples our notions of care on their head, which is what I really appreciate about your work, Deepak. You really take a more holistic or what I like to think of as a functional or full body systems perspective. And one of the things you speak about is the role of trauma in pain. Can you talk a little bit more about the impacts of trauma and resilience in pain or pain perception? Oh, that's a great question, Andrea. And and it's something that I'm very passionate about is in trying to help raise the awareness of what trauma actually does. And trauma, by that way, is not just the acute orthopedic kind of trauma that people might have. And it also doesn't mean the emotional trauma that sometimes often talks about when you think about conditions like PTSD. But what the evidence and the neuroscience and the biology and, in fact, immunology is starting to come together. And and this is what I found fascinating when I was writing the book is, is that all these strands were all talking about what the impact of stress does to the immune system. And when you look at it from that angle that the immune system is present in every part of the body, including the nervous system, including the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, then it means that anything that impacts on the stress impacts on the immune system, and that will have an impact on the nervous system and the synaptic junctions where these representatives of the immune system, the microglia, reside. So therefore, if you then take it one step upstream and say, what can be the potential stressors, we are starting to realize that trauma in its multifaceted forms, whether you think of it as a a physical trauma, whether you think of it as an emotional trauma, you call it developmental trauma or childhood trauma, or you have a series of minor traumas, you know, series of abuse or neglect or isolation, each one of them stresses the human social animal and activates the stress responses and activates the same protection cascades within the immune system that spills over 
into the nervous system. And once the nervous system senses that protection needs to be ensured, it will go about its protective neural circuits, which is how we are beginning to now accept and understand pain in its sort of complex nuances, that pain is a protective phenomenon that is a composite of the reaction of the brain to stress and to threat, and is actually an amalgamation of prior experiences, predictions, and a final output. Mm. Mm, You just said that so beautifully. I think it's really an important step back in that full understanding of what led us to that moment in time so that we're not just putting a Band-Aid on the pain with something that suppresses the feeling of the pain, but really understanding what brought us again to that point in time. And one of the things I've been really diving deep into is where there may be trauma for patients who are chronically challenged, whether it's in any area of their health and wellness or medical history, by medical trauma, by not being seen as a whole, and by seeking and seeking and seeking some answers. And I'm wondering how that appears in your practice. Do you see people who are just in that quest to finally feel better and they've been divided into all their different ologies? I work in a secondary care NHS organization in the United Kingdom, and the hospital that I work in is one of the busiest district general hospitals, as it were, just one step short of a a university hospital. And so the pain clinic there, I get to see the complexity of these presentations from all organ systems. And every other day or every day sometimes, I get one or two patients who exactly have undergone the journey that you describe, Andrea. In fact, today I had a patient who had been given a diagnosis of chronic fatigue and pain, and she's been seen by four or five different specialists, never has had the time to tell her whole story and say what her symptoms were. And when I actually gave her the time to sort of Uh, give that piece of half an hour, 40 minutes, what I approach and what I sort of uh, take is what I call as a a trauma-informed lens. I try to take that whole picture that it's not about why is this person in pain now and what should I do next step, is actually what happened to you and the whole life journey. So that kind of maps in a way to side of the functional uh, matrix that you have, you know, the antecedents, what might have been. And and for example, if we take the same patient, she talked about the fact that she did have a illness in her childhood and that after that, she never felt the same. She was having chronic migraines all the time and she was starting to feel exhausted from her teens. And then by the 20s, she was starting to have a difficult marriage. So that was an antecedent. And then she started to have repeated bowel episodes, which were diagnosed as IBS that got progressively severe. And from her perspective, she realized that it was her IBS, which was driving the cascade of everything that would finally result in pain and mood changes and exhaustion and fatigue. And you realize that that kind of approach can never be really fitted into the typical mainstream conventional way of investigate and reduce. You'd have to take a step back and actually say, what's the functional whole? And then try to offer a signpost of what can you do next in terms of 
restoring equilibrium as far as your immune and nervous system is concerned rather than being very prescriptive. So I adopt what I call as a a trauma-informed lens to my practice and it's what I think secondary care or specialist health care should probably aspire to. I think it is a very uh, American, I forget, it's called SAMHSA, the, the substance uh, use organization, which talks about the fact that trauma-informed care should really have these four R's. You realize that everybody is going to have and carry some form of trauma. You respond appropriately, but most importantly, you want to resist re-traumatizing. Your language, your communication, and the treatments you use must all avoid making the nervous system and immune system threatened. Yeah, that's so important. And one thing that I find the students and practitioners that I train have a challenge with is that fourth R. Are we going to re-trigger it by talking about it? And one of the things I really appreciate that you talk about is knowing it and realizing it so it informs your care, but also understanding it's not necessarily your job to hold the recovery from the trauma because there are other people that you'd be working with on that patient's team. Do I have that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I am not a qualified psychologist and I'm not a psychotherapist in that sense. But what I would like to think of myself is I'm at least psychologically informed. I understand that trauma can happen in any one of us. And it means that at least I tailor my communication, you know, how should I be presenting the information if they need a scan? How should I be presenting the information if they need an investigation and I'm suspecting something? And how can I get that message across in a way that I don't make the nervous system stand on edge? It may not be possible for everyone, but I think that at least should be the aspiration that we try. And actually to understand, I, I one of the things you asked me about was resilience. And this is where it matters. And this is something I've realized that actually we talk about resilient as being something which is inside the person. I think the realization now from evidence is that resilience is not so much about just an individual being resilient. It's actually some product of what are the factors in his immediate, in her immediate circle that actually maintain that inner resilience? What is the social system? What are the family? What are the friends? What is the employment? What's the employer support? And I think all of that needs to be factored in when we talk to our patients and decide on our next steps of treatment. So I, I would definitely say that you don't have to go poking the bear and uncovering and opening Pandora's box, but it is about actually making sure that our communication and interaction is sensitive and compassionate. Yeah, so important. And I love that we're having this conversation when we're talking about pain and pain management. And you've written a book that we'll link to in the show notes, The Pain-Free Mindset. And mindset actually is an acronym. And that gets us into the kind of how-tos with this trauma-informed care layered over it. Can you walk us through what mindset stands for? So, there's been a sometimes some patients have asked me, oh, the mindset, are you asking me to say and are you telling me pain is in the mind? And actually, I, I, you know, that's a very common 
perception that unfortunately the stigma that a lot of chronic pain patients still face that they don't get the validation and the belief from their healthcare providers that they are actually suffering with something that may not be visible easily on an MRI scan or seen on a blood film. So I put that proposal to them and I want to make it inclusive. So the mindset is an acronym where the M stands for medication. So I don't wish to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I would agree that yes, opioids are not great news for long-term pain, but we must realize that there is a group of people who may benefit from it and they should not be denied that. There would be a group of people who have actually been very helped, very much helped on that. And we should be careful how we have the conversation about tapering if they are ready for it. So that's the M part of it is we don't ever have to stop medications for any condition just because we think there's no role for it. There may be a role, but it's to be decided. The I is for interventions. Now, that may include surgery. That may include interventions such as injections in pain management or infusions in rheumatology. But that means that it has to be also part of the package rather than an individual treatment by itself. And in the book, I go into a little bit more geeked out wherein I say, well, if we think we are over-medicalizing and operating a lot more than we should, then maybe patients also should be empowered to have a conversation around with their surgeons around understanding the benefits of a procedure before they go for it, talking about the risks, talking about the alternatives, and actually having the discussion on what if you do nothing. So B-R-A-N, the brand within interventions. The N is actually the neuroscience. It's really understanding this confluence of the immune system, the nervous system, the protection that the brain is always looking out for, the predictive mechanisms it tries to use, and the concept of embodied. You know, pain is not just top-down or bottom-up. It's actually an output of both. It can be embodied in that sense. And that leads on to saying that if, you have a condition wherein there is no nociception, meaning that there is no chemicals being produced, then the M and the I may not be that useful. That means that it is time to come to the D, the S, the E, and the T. So the D is the understanding of the diet and the nutrition and the increasing importance of the microbiome in how it modulates the nervous system. S is actually sleep. We understand that the influence between sleep and pain is actually bidirectional. And E is physical activity of any kind. I don't want to say exercise, although E stands for exercise, but I think exercise again becomes a bit pejorative sometimes for some people. So I say physical activity in all its shape, as long as it is something that the brain considers protective and safe. And finally, but not last, T. T is the therapies of mind and body. And this is not just about behavioral therapy, which is what everybody thinks of, but it's actually yoga. It's, it's about embracing all those elements of touch and other forms of therapy like yoga, tai chi, pilates, all of which have a role. And now increasingly neuroscience has shown that they have the ability to modify neural circuits and calm the immune and nervous system down. So that is the comprehensive M-I-N-D-S-E-T, the mindset acronym.
It's so comprehensive. And, you know, sometimes at the end of the podcast, Deepak, I ask practitioners, what are we doing all wrong? And it sounds like there's a lot we might be doing all wrong in relation to pain. And I'm wondering if I got a little more narrow in that question and asked you, what can I do? What can we in the realm of nutrition do to help the work that you're doing with people who are in pain? Where can we focus our attention to better serve the patients that you're seeing and the doctors like yourself who are treating these patients? I think there is a huge amount that nutrition probably can do and should do. And I I really look forward to working more with nutritionists who can actually take this understanding of the microbiome and its influence in modifying, modulating pain. There's now increasingly lots of studies coming out in autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and other forms of arthritis. There's other conditions like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's. So there's a variety of GI conditions as well as non-GI conditions where it's been shown that modifying nutrition can impact on the intensity, the duration, and the quality of pain. So actually, this is not something mainstream pain physicians or even general practitioners are aware or are able to know what the next steps are. And I don't know about the US, probably the awareness is a lot more and maybe it's a bit patchy. But in the UK, a lot of the dietitians and nutritionists are still having their hands full with trying to support diabetic patients and kidney function patients with their nutritional plans. There is now a crying need for actually saying, how can we operationalize an anti-inflammatory diet? What would be the way to coach and support patients who are looking at nutritional ways of improving their meal plans or their supplements or added understanding of how to actually coach them into eating healthy and staying healthy. I think that is a very good field and a good place for nutritionists to liaise with pain centers to offer their support and to come up with a plan of support and maintenance. I love that because I'm training the army to fill that gap. So that (laughs) makes me feel good about the work that I'm doing to support the work, the brilliant work that you're doing, Deepak. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You're welcome, Andrea. Thank you for having me. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. 
We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our Full Body Systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.